Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today we're going to reach into a jar of pickled eggs and, and see what we pull out. Yes, that's right. We are venturing into the egg chamber. Uh, this is going to be kind of a, a potpourri episode, uh, uh, kind of a you know a salad bar episode with uh, with multiple um, curiosities plucked uh, from the the, the vinegar soaked vat here. And if uh, everyone digs it, perhaps we'll come back and uh, explore uh, more topics along this line. But basically, yeah, we're talking about eggs and eggs just in general are pretty amazing even in their most mundane form factoring you know into the equation the more familiar examples of reproduction and cuisine you know i feel like we need to take a step back and just consider how weird and wonderful they are they are an organic vessel a means for biology to leave one being and then develop into another and then burst free of this protective shell or casing that has served as its vehicle the egg, in a way, makes me think of that uh, quote that we've talked about a couple of times that was in Brian Greene's book about how uh, when we learn to take the water with us out of the ocean, that's yeah. like how he, uh, organisms move to land, like, you know, that we're water bags sloshing around on feet. And in a way, the egg is sort of the same principle. It takes some of the same sustaining conditions from being within the, uh, the the mother's body outside of the body where you can eventually hatch out after you mature enough. I like that you brought up the ocean uh, here because we all, of course, come from the ocean. That is the, the ultimate uh, origin uh, of, of life uh, here on Earth. But, but in addition to that, we see, of course, primordial oceans factoring into various world mythologies. And we also see uh, the idea of an egg featuring prominently in world mythologies as well. We see variations of the world egg in many different myth cycles, including, but not limited to, uh, Vedic, uh, Greek. Egyptian and Chinese mythologies, and we could we could easily devote an entire episode just to these varied myths because they're all pretty pretty fabulous. The idea of, of of the universe or some primordial creator being emerging from this egg uh, in the Greek tradition, it's known as the and it's often depicted as being kind of serpent bound. This orphic egg from which the primordial Fannies emerges. Isn't it interesting, though, the way that the egg is kind of a biological Pandora's box to go to another Greek myth because you can't always tell from the external morphology of the egg what kind of animal is inside? Right, right. And certainly in the case, uh, we've, we've, of course, talked about like uh, various brood parasites on the show before, including uh, avian examples like the cuckoo, uh, yeah. in, in which case, you know, the, um, a, a mother bird may not be able to tell if one of the eggs has been uh, placed uh, into her nest by another species. Uh, but speaking of uh, mysterious and, and uh, difficult to identify orbs, uh, so the idea that made us want to do this episode was something that you shared with me last week. It was a news article about a really interesting fossil find. This was uh, so the article you shared was a June 2020 NPR article by Nell Greenfield Boyce, and it tells the story of 
how a paleontologist from UT Austin named Julia Clark was visiting a colleague named David Rubilar Rogers, who works at Chile's uh, National Museum of Natural History, and this was back in 2018. And Rubilar Rogers apparently wanted Clark's opinion on a very strange fossil in his collection, which had been found in Antarctica way back in 2011. Specifically, it was on an island off the tip of the Antarctic Peninsula called Seymour Island. And Seymour Island has been a, a rich site for fossil excavations for more than 100 years now. I think I've read about fossils being found there in the 1890s. But Greenfield Boyce describes this fossil that uh, these two paleontologists were looking at as more than 11 by 7 inches. So it's about 29 by 20 centimeters and of pretty much the exact size and appearance of a deflated football, except it's stone now. It's it's uh, petrified. It's fossilized. And Rubilar Rogers and his colleagues referred to this object as the thing. So you can see why <laughs> we were intrigued. Absolutely. And the, the images that, uh, that, that accompany this article of the thing do look very thingish. Uh, it is, it almost, almost looks like it's like a withered face, you know, kind of like the, the face of the sorting hat or something, or what's that, the, the oogie boogie creature from, uh, the nightmare oh, before Christmas, you know? I was thinking exactly that. And, and I think that's a really good point. It, it, the comparison to a deflated football or this kind of wrinkly oogie boogie man face is really good because when you look at this object, even though it is now fully fossilized, it is basically a, it is a mineral product, you can immediately see in its creases and textures the remnants of what must have been some kind of soft, leathery membrane collapsed in on itself. So, yes, it's mysterious. Yes, it's creepy. It is definitely a thing. But what is it? It's just this strange, collapsed, deflated orb. Well, upon further analysis, the researchers here figured out that this was an egg. It's a fossil of a giant, soft-shelled egg from around 68 million years ago. So this would be just toward the ends of the Cretaceous period near the KPG boundary that marks the end of the non-avian dinosaurs. And the researchers published their findings in the journal Nature earlier this month. Uh, the, the article was called A Giant Soft-Shelled Egg from the Late Cretaceous of Antarctica. And this is now the largest soft-shelled egg ever known to exist. And it's, uh, in addition to being the largest soft-shelled egg, it's the second largest egg of any kind known to ever exist, uh, falling only slightly behind the huge eggs of Madagascar's flightless elephant birds, which went extinct sometime in the past few hundred years. Yeah, we, we discussed them a little bit in our MOA episodes. Right. Uh, but, but even that was only a little bit bigger than this egg. And the, the authors conclude that this was probably the egg of a gigantic marine reptile, such as a mosasaur, of which uh, adult remains had been found nearby the same fossil bed. So you find adult mosasaurs nearby there at around the same layer. It seems like this very likely came from a creature like that. And on the importance of this find, uh, Greenfield Boyce in her NPR piece quotes a, an evolutionary biologist from Princeton University named Mary Caswell Stoddard, 
who says, quote, a soft-shelled fossil egg like this is a rare gem. The lack of soft-shelled fossil eggs, which are extremely rare, makes it challenging to flesh out a detailed picture of egg evolution in vertebrates. This discovery helps provide one critical piece of the puzzle. So this is important because it gives us a look at something that we don't often see captured in fossil form, the soft-shelled egg, and it helps us get a better picture of how exactly eggs changed and evolved as dinosaurs evolved over time. Oh, and real quick, if, you, if, if you're out there listening and you're like, okay, Mosasaur, which one is that? Put it in Jurassic Park terms for me. Well, uh, in the movie Jurassic World, uh, that's supposed to be a Mosasaur in the big uh, aquatic part of the park. Oh, the one that like eats an executive assistant or something? Yeah, yeah, the, um, <laughs> that, that really horrible scene uh, in the oh. film yeah, where, it, where it leaps up and, and eats this, uh, this uh, I think, otherwise innocent uh, character in the film. Yeah, I uh, remember th- that, that was – well, I'm not going to get off on all my Jurassic World beefs, but the, <laughs> that scene felt tonally strange. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I agree. But still, great dinosaur sequence. Uh, I, I just wish she had been more of a you know a villain or something. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, so, so back to the thing. So the, the characteristics of this egg are strange. Instead of the hard calcified shells that paleontologists used to believe were just the norm for dinosaurs, this, along with other recent egg finds, uh, for example, from the genus Protoceratops and the genus um, uh, Musaris, reveals that many dinosaurs and Cretaceous marine reptiles laid eggs that were like this, that were pliable and soft, like some turtle species do today. And it looks like it just it varied according to different groups of dinosaurs. So you would have theropod dinosaurs like the T-Rex, and they would lay calcified hard-shelled eggs. And you'd have many sauropods or hadrosaurs also laying hard-shelled calcified eggs, like the ones you would imagine from uh, birds or, or many reptiles that live on land today, while you had these other animals like probably mosasaurs, probably protoceratops laying softer, leatherier eggs. And so the question is, why would the eggshell be so thin and soft? What's the advantage to that? Well, one possibility is maybe that's just the way things had always been, and they would stay that way unless they were driven by specific environmental pressures to become otherwise, to harden and calcify. The researchers in this other nature paper from this year, uh, the one I mentioned uh, a minute ago, it's it's just called The First Dinosaur Egg Was Soft. They argued that ancestral dinosaurs probably all laid soft-shelled eggs, and then over time, over the millions of years, via convergent evolution, several different groups of later dinosaurs independently evolved the adaptation of hard-shelled eggs, uh, at least three different times that we know of. So there would have just been evolutionary pressure for thicker shells. On on some of these other dinosaurs, but apparently not on this one, probably mm-hmm. not on this mosasaur creature. Uh, so, so looking specifically at the thing, the authors of that study in Nature posit something really interesting about it. They say at the end of their abstract, quote, such a large egg with a relatively thin eggshell may reflect derived constraints associated with body shape, reproductive investment linked with gigantism, and lepidosaurian viviparity in which a vestigial egg is laid and hatches immediately. So we don't know this for sure, but what they're saying it, it, it looks like here is this was 
very likely a creature that laid an egg, but it was almost a sort of egg-assisted live birth. So you would lay uh, lay a soft, thin, pliable egg, and then nearly immediately the hatchling would tear out of this egg sack and escape, and then the egg would fall to the ocean floor and collapse. Yeah. All right. Yeah. I think this this is making sense here because, uh, I mean, you can imagine the world of the mosasaur, like like all aquatic uh, uh, worlds. You know, it's 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 probably not a, a really peaceful place. So that uh, the, that creature that that youngling needs to be highly developed and just ready to burst out and go, not to sink to the bottom of the muck. Yeah, and this level of maturity at the time of hatching is a theme that that we'll come back to a few other times here. Yeah, in fact, our, our next uh, example of uh, curious eggs from the natural world uh, gets into this a little bit. I want to talk about uh, the eggs of the volcano birds. Ooh, good. So, uh, specifically, we're going to be talking about the Maleo uh, birds of the—you'll uh, find them uh, on the Indonesian island of Sulawesi. Uh, and then there's a smaller island uh, named Bhutan, where you'll also find them. Uh, and uh, Sulawesi is one of the four greater Sunda islands, actually the world's 11th largest island, I believe. Uh, listeners might remember us from discussing this in a recent episode about archaeological finds there that may push back the earliest date for known examples of hunting scenes in prehistoric art. Oh, yeah. And there was also a question, I think, about whether the same uh, cave artwork in Indonesia depicted uh, therianthropes, right? The idea of, of uh, theriomorphic or animal-formed humans. And, and if so, whether that would push back the earliest physical evidence we have of uh, fantasy thinking or supernatural magical thinking in, in humans. Yeah. So uh, as far as I know, that's still kind of a, an open question. More research remains to be uh, uh, conducted, but uh, it's certainly exciting. But also the Maleo bird is rather exciting. Uh, I, I was not uh, familiar with this creature till very recently, but basically it's, it's a chicken sized bird. And uh, we have and of course, it lays eggs. And one of the important jobs of an egg layer is, of course, uh, to provide for the egg's incubation. Now, in some cases, an egg uh, uh, may basically be ready to go, like we said, uh, the, you know, the second it comes out. Uh, but then other times the egg needs to uh, uh, be cared for. It needs to be incubated a bit longer. And in many cases, you know, a bird is just going to use their own uh, body to incubate the egg. This is the, the classic scenario of a chicken. Uh, uh, you know, lay, laying on its eggs. Uh, the example of penguins keeping uh, their e the eggs warm, uh, you know, by their feet. That sort of thing. It's a good energy move because you, I mean, you've got extra body heat coming off of you, whether you want that or not. Why not put it to use? Exactly, and then it also in opens up the door for various. Uh, Additional strategies, such as, again, the cuckoos, brood parasites, that don't actually incubate the egg further themselves, but have another bird, another species do it through a mix of mimicry and or uh, threats of violence. Mm -hmm. But then there are also uh, – there are – sort of environmental engineers, animals that use the environment, that build structures of some kind to help them incubate eggs without having to make a personal time commitment of just sitting on it the whole time. That's right. I mean, it's almost it's almost as if the bird would have think back. It's like, all right, what am I doing here? I'm providing heat. Where else can I get heat? Uh, <laughs> um, so like in Australia, you see the example of the bush turkey, which actually builds a compost pile that incubates the eggs via the heat of microbial decay. Oh, yeah. These things are great. I think some 
listeners in Australia have actually talked to us about them before, regarding them somewhat as pests for making giant mounds in their yard and things <laughs> like this. But uh, but yeah, the 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 bush turkey or brush turkey. These are examples of these megapode birds uh, that that are they're sort of like the beavers of the bird world. Yeah. And, uh, you know, if you, if anyone out there, if you, if you like, like me, if you have a compost, uh, uh, you know, spinner, that sort of thing, you'll notice it does heat up in there. Uh, you know, there's a lot of activity going on inside the compost. When my son was younger, he would call it the hot, hot machine. And indeed, that's what the bush turkey has done here is that it it creates its own hot, hot machine uh, to incubate the eggs. Yeah. So it makes a big compost pile out of litter and leaf litter and things like that, that I've read. I think sometimes that they can be as big as a car like these piles can be huge yeah they're sizable i can see why it could be in some cases considered a pest because it just creates a big old heap but you know what if if you got a heap in your yard don't be ashamed don't be embarrassed be proud of your heap point it out to your neighbors (laughs) say check out that heap that's really cool it's hot it's the hot hot heap (laughs) yeah all right so let's get back to the maleo bird here uh, which uh which also has a, a cool pair of solutions to this problem. Uh, It depends on one of two options for the incubation of its eggs, either by burying its eggs in solar heated sands. So there's some hot sand over here. I'll put my eggs in there. Uh, Solar power will do the rest. Or, and this is the exciting part, burying them in geothermally heated volcanic soils, hot sands adjacent to volcanic vents. Whoa, that's a strategy on the edge. That, that, That bird is living on the edge. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 pretty amazing. There's some wonderful uh, some wonderful footage of this as well, and it's just it's almost phoenix like this idea, right? Of uh, of of the the egg being deposited in the uh, vol- volcanically heated ground, and then it emerges. Um, by the way, the the Maleo's egg is roughly watermelon shaped, and uh, I was reading in a 2017 study from Princeton University that was doing like kind of an overall. Uh, you know, cataloging of egg sizes and, and characteristics, uh, they point out uh, uh, that it is the most elliptical of all avian eggs. And the idea here is that the bird may have evolved to become a skillful flyer, and its egg may also have evolved this way to accommodate a streamlined body that is built for instantaneous flight. Now, wait a minute. Would that mean the egg was shaped to accommodate the body of the uh, of the embryo inside it or of the mother that's carrying it before it is laid? Um, my interpretation, my understanding is that we're, we're dealing more with the chick uh, okay. because the chick, yeah. when it when it hatches, needs to be ready to go. Because the whole idea of letting a volcano uh, incubate your eggs, of letting a volcano raise your children, is that you don't have to do anything. Uh, when the egg hatches... Uh, the, the the mother um, Maleo is long gone. Right. So yeah. And so the the young Maleo, the Maleo chick hatches and is on its own and ready to fly almost immediately. And this is actually a very special feature of megapode birds generally. The megapode. I was just wondering actually. I, everybody I've heard pronounce this word says megapodes, but then I was thinking about the antipodes, and I was like, it is is it megapodes birds? But it, no, I hmm. think it's megapodes anyway. Um, but yeah, the, these other birds like the bush turkey are famous for having young that are extremely quick to adapt to life like immediately after hatching they can run around they can hunt they can fly on a dime all right on that note we're going to take a quick break but we'll be right back with more eggs 
All right, we're back. So what's next in the egg chamber here, Joe? Well, Robert, as soon as you suggested the idea of doing an episode on eggs, my mind instantly filled with thoughts of Ridley Scott's Alien, because I think, you know, we come back to this text quite a bit. uh, And I think of John Hurt descending into an enclosed pit of these leathery orbs, and then he comes in closer to get a better look at one. And one of the eggs nearby starts to throb and its flaps peel back. And of course, we all know what happens next. Right, the, the parasite just leaps out, attaches itself to its to his face, immobilizes him, and begins uh, putting some kind of alien pupa in his body. So, in Alien, we're presented with a vision of a sort of predatory egg or ambush egg, and an egg which opens to unleash a parasite that requires no additional maturation outside the egg before it is lethal. And that made me wonder, is there anything like a predatory egg in the natural world? Mm, Yeah, because this is, of course, the most famous example is Alien. But you see versions of this throughout science fiction uh, influenced by Alien, where there's some sort of horrible egg. And, uh, yeah, you you look at it wrong and it will open and get you or it'll open and exude some sort of uh, a parasite that will creep up on you and get you. Yeah. Now, I couldn't find anything exactly like Alien, but there are some pretty close parallels. In fact, things we've already talked about a good bit on the podcast, so we're not going to linger on too much. But I want to go in a few directions with this. One is just to talk about an interesting distinction in zoology that we've already been coming up against the border of. And that's the uh, the relevant distinction between altriciality and precociality in animals. So think of the hatchlings of a songbird like like a sparrow, you know, the, the passiforms here. The, a sparrow, once it emerges from an egg, it is helpless. It could not survive on its own. It lacks the ability to fly. It, I'm not sure if it even lacks the ability to walk, really. I mean, it can't move around much by itself. It certainly can't forage for itself. Once it hatches, the sparrow hatchling sits in the nest waiting to be brought food while it matures. And there, there are many animals that are like this, you know, upon whether it's hatching from an egg or live birth, upon being born, they can't really do much for themselves. They certainly can't move around much. And a species like this would be called altricial, meaning its young are relatively helpless, unable to move around by themselves for a long time after they're born or hatched. The opposite of altriciality is known as precociality, and this is from the same root word as precocious, a a word that often gets applied to, like, creepily mature human children. Yes. (laughs) When there's the the little boy who speaks like an adult man, and, you know, that's quite precocious. Or Shirley Temple is is often an an example of this. Uh A precocial species is one that matures and is able to move around on its own and fend for itself relatively soon after being born or hatched. I think the most common metric used to, to measure this distinction is movement. Like how much can this animal, you know, do its own locomotion? Mm-hmm. And there are some animals that take precociality to the extreme, and these are known as super precocial animals. A very commonly cited example is exactly what we've been talking about already, megapode birds. Uh, of course, the megapodes include the Maleo bird that you were just talking about. They include the the mound builder birds like the brush turkeys or the bush turkeys. And obviously not all of them are exactly the same, but megapodes, generally, you're going to see that once they hatch, they're able to see, they're not born blind, they can see, they can walk, they can run, they can hunt, they can fly pretty much on the same day that they emerge from their eggs. And that's pretty amazing. Yeah, it really throws a lot of our, especially um, 
human centric ideas about uh, about birth and uh, and 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 maturity right out the window. Totally, uh, because obviously humans are relatively altricial, right? Um, mm-hmm. But by this metric, the xenomorph facehugger from Alien would be an example of super precociality, right? It's taken to the logical extreme. It's a parasite that that only needs one host, and it is ready to attack that host literally the moment it emerges from its egg. So it's already hunting within seconds of, of cracking out. Yeah, and of course, we could easily do whole podcasts about like each um, each phase in the life cycle of the xenomorph. But uh, I was just thinking, it's like in a way, is the uh, the face hugger that emerges from the egg like that seems to be like the the actual organism itself, right? Uh, depending on how you interpret it. Well, yeah, it's interesting. It's it's a it's a creature with a life cycle that's got two completely morphologically different stages that are that are you know like trophically staggered. So one life cycle gives rise to the next life cycle, but they're not the like you know adults do not emerge from the egg. The face hugger emerges from the egg, and then it finds a human. It implants in the human. The, I guess there's a pupa that gestates there, and then that becomes the adult. So yeah, depending on how you look at it, the the face hugger could be considered like the 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 purest form of the organism before it ends up taking on properties of the the host organism. Oh, uh, I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but by that count uh, as well, I've also seen interpretations that that say, well, the the face hugger is essentially like a mobile sex organ. Like it's not it's it's not the organism itself. It is a precursor to it, uh, and then ultimately the whole life cycle is so. Uh, uh, suitably alien that it doesn't completely line up with with even some of the elaborate uh, life cycles that we see here on Earth. And we do have some really elaborate ones. Yeah. And I would say of all the life cycles that we see on Earth, I think probably the one that the alien creature is the closest to is something we've actually talked about a good bit on the show before. So we're not going to rehash everything here, but just real quickly, parasitoid wasps. Mm. Um, so parasitoid wasps, you know, there are different well, actually, you could just say parasitoids in general, but the parasitoid wasp, uh, the, the hymenopteran parasitoids are a really good example where what they will often do is they will find a host organism such as a tarantula or something like that. They will immobilize it. So they, they inject it with a paralyzing venom, seal it up some way with their eggs, either the eggs planted on it or near it. And then when the eggs hatch, they consume this animal, this like spider or whatever it is, alive from the inside out as they mature toward their adult stage. I mean, that's that's pretty dang close to exactly what goes on with the xenomorph, right? Oh, yeah. And in many cases, it's even more amazing than that, because you get into these examples of the of the uh, of, of the parasitoid wasp altering the behavior of the host organism. It gets uh, it. I, I, yeah, it's certainly a case where nature um at least equals, but I think probably exceeds uh, just the the complexity of the xenomorph scenario, at least in this case. Yeah, I guess it's a it's a cliche for us at this point, but nature is stranger than fiction. You you can't make this stuff up. Yeah, but to explore some uh, more new territory, I was wondering about the idea of being attacked by an egg itself. Is there such a thing as a, <laughs> like a real like predatory egg, not just what comes out of the egg? 
and I couldn't find anything directly like this. Like, a, you know, I was looking for something like a, you know, an animal that like mimics an egg, like an egg mimic decoy that attacks, I don't know, when you come up on it or something. I, I couldn't find anything exactly like that. If, if you know of examples out there that I couldn't find, please email, make us aware. But You uh, mean like a creature that pretends to be an egg and then would prey upon a, a, something that eats eggs? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I mean. Mm-hmm. Okay. Do, what, right. do, I mean, you, do you know of something like that? Um, no, I don't. Oh, okay. <laughs> I think there's some sort of robot in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, right? Don't they have some robots that look like eggs? Uh, I don't know. But if they were turtle eggs, they may very well be soft and leathery shelled instead of hard shelled. Oh, we have just received an update from our producer, Seth, who has been uh, uh, digging into old episodes of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And he informs us that I am thinking of the mouser robots, uh, which are not... I think supposed to be eggs, but do look sort of egg-like. So it's just kind of a coincidence of their design. Yeah, I think Seth told us recently that he's made it to season 46 of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles cartoon. So uh, so best of luck to you, Seth, on your on your turtle journey. Um, but uh, but I, I want to bring it back. Okay, so in terms of being injured or attacked by an egg itself, I did find something. It wasn't active, deliberate violence by an egg, but I did find something here. So... I was reading an article in the New York Times from December 2017 by Veronique Greenwood, which was based in part on a series of findings by a couple of acoustics experts named Anthony Nash and Lauren Von Blon, who at the time worked at an acoustics firm that was called Charles M. Salter and Associates. Uh, Now, what would acoustics experts have to do with eggs? Well, their research, which was presented in early December at the Acoustical Society of America meeting in New Orleans, concerned the physical properties, especially the loudness of exploding eggs. (laughs) Now, again, we're just talking about regular chicken eggs here, no Giger-esque insect trap mine eggs or anything like that. Uh, Nash and Von Blon had been hired as expert witnesses for the defense in a recent lawsuit. Unfortunately, I don't think the real names of the plaintiff or the defendant or the location were ever published. Uh, I think that stuff remains confidential. So we only know about it from their research and the reporting on that research where the details were anonymized. Uh, And I think the case was eventually settled out of court. So it may remain a mystery forever. But in broad, anonymous outline, the alleged facts of of the case were as follows. Plaintiff walks into a restaurant. He orders a hard-boiled egg. I'm assuming he ordered some other stuff too. That would be a pretty strange thing to order at a restaurant by itself, but the egg is the important part here. They bring him his hard-boiled egg. He bites into the egg. Upon being pierced by the plaintiff's teeth, the egg explodes. As in, it literally explodes, resulting in what the plaintiff claimed were severe burns and actual hearing damage from the volume of the explosion. Now, when I first read that, I was like, what? Could could that be real? I'm having a hard time imagining it, that, that that really happened, but... You can use the old YouTube and see for yourself, unless there are a bunch of like coordinated egg explosion hoaxers all doing homebrew video manipulation or special effects. Exploding eggs are absolutely a thing, uh, and they, they, they can actually be done very easily if you involve one crucial piece of technology, and that is the microwave oven. Oh, but of course, yeah. 
So perhaps you yourself have at some point tried to cook a whole intact egg shell on inside a microwave. And if so, I would not be surprised if you have detonated an egg bomb yourself in this way. Microwaving a whole egg often results in a big pop and a gooey mess. But sometimes a microwaved egg, especially a microwave reheating of a previously hard-boiled egg, can result in an egg that holds together through the cooking. So you can microwave it for however long. You take it out of the microwave, but if you disturb it in just the wrong way, say by piercing it with a fork or with your teeth, it suddenly explodes with a with a pop, a real like loud sound like a firecracker and egg hot egg pieces go everywhere. And we know this is possible just from publicly available video evidence. People are, you know, messing around with this in their houses all the time apparently. But how often does this happen? What are the physics underlying it and how dangerous is it? Yeah, because, I, I mean, obviously it makes sense that an egg could pop. You know, you could have pressure built up in there. In fact, Willie, we use an egg cooker in the house a lot, and they have that spike in the middle that you're supposed to uh, use to, um, to to make a hole in the shell of the egg before you cook it, mm-hmm. uh, which I, you know, I always assumed was to keep it from bursting or, or even exploding. Now, I was surprised about the idea that it could allegedly... Uh, cause hearing damage, uh, the idea of a bursting egg. I would imagine it would be just kind of a, you know, a, 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 a popping situation. Right. The hearing damage was alleged by the plaintiff, and we'll, yeah. we'll try to get to the bottom of that. But um, so what was what did their research consist of when they were looking into this? Nash and Von Blond's research first tested actual eggs using the same reheating method that was supposedly employed by the restaurant that was the defendant in the lawsuit. Uh, so you would take a previously hard-boiled egg and you'd reheat it by microwaving it for three minutes in a water bath. Now, uh, the researchers here did admit that after several explosions coated the inside of the microwave with egg gunk, they realized they needed some kind of uh, permeable containment device. So they came up with the addition of like a nylon stocking type casement for the egg. Uh, But with this in place, they repeated the experiment with about 100 eggs, taking the temperature of the water bath and taking the temperature of the egg itself each time by piercing it with a meat thermometer. And when the eggs were done microwaving, they, they did the piercing, they would take it out, put it on the floor and stab the probe of the meat thermometer in to take the internal temperature and to see if piercing the egg would cause it to explode. And what they found was that some eggs did nothing. Some exploded inside the microwave while cooking, but of the 100 eggs, roughly, they found about one third survived the reheating itself only to explode on the outside of the microwave once poked with the thermometer. So I, I think it's pretty conclusive. The explosion thing, like rupturing a, a microwave-heated, hard-boiled egg, absolutely can cause it to blow up. That just happens. Mm-hmm. And it looks like it happens roughly about one-third of the time. But of the ones that did explode, the loudness of the explosion at its peak was between 86 and 133 decibels at a distance of 12 inches from the egg. And Nash compared this to, uh, at the, the upper end, the 133 decibels, he compared it to the loudness of something like a chainsaw, which is, you know, loud but not usually a source of hearing damage on a, on a short time of exposure on its own. 
And based on this reasoning, Nash claimed that actual hearing damage from an exploding egg was not impossible, but that it was unlikely. Though at the same time, I, I think it is worth noting that these scientists were hired by the defense in the trial to be expert witnesses for that side. So not not impugning their reputation, but it is worth noting the interests involved. Yeah, so we might need to take this particular egg study with a, a grain of salt, maybe a little pepper, a little mustard, if we uh, if we so desire. Yeah, um, some gherkins, definitely. <laughs> so, but realistically, I guess it sounds like it would be loud enough that if you just heard exploding eggs all day, it could hurt your hearing, but maybe not just one going off. That could be the case. Uh, then again, I mean, we don't know for sure. I mean, like it's possible they, they didn't rule out the possibility that there could there could be hearing damage in some kind of outside case here uh, but the the standard the average loudness of the explosion they thought probably would not hurt your ears if it just happened one time but then but that's not to say this is fine i mean you would not want to bite into one of these eggs i think burns are obviously oh, yeah. why that could happen and just it, generally anything exploding inside your mouth uh, I'd imagine even could just probably startle you enough that you might get whiplash or something like that. I mean, that's, uh, biting into something that explodes is a horrifying idea. Yeah, and I do want to drive home here. If, if you're out there and you're listening to this and maybe you're stuck in your house and you're a little bit bored, do not experiment with exploding eggs. Uh, just, uh, you know, have an egg uh, for breakfast maybe uh, and think about this. But, yeah, don't try and make eggs explode just because you heard about it on this show. Right. Uh, and, and, and so there's a more interesting question, though, that we still haven't solved, which is why would the eggs explode at all? You can kind of imagine like, OK, the heating, the buildup of pressure and steam as it could cause it to explode while it's cooking inside the microwave. Why is it that there's this pattern where about a third of the eggs that they tested out here didn't explode while cooking, but did explode once you poked them with something? That's right. Yeah, it would seem like they would reach the because, again, coming back to my experience using an egg cooker is, OK, we poke the hole in the top of the egg with the spike so that it doesn't rupture, I guess. And then some of the time uh, you see egg content has been pushed up through the uh, the hole that we created mm -hmm. and other times it is not. So maybe and I've never analyzed it enough to say that it's happening a third of the time or whatnot. But maybe that's that's what we're talking about here. The same situation could be now. Uh, so one thing found by Nash and Von Blonde was that when they measured the temperature of the water bath that the egg was sitting in while it was microwaved and then compared that to the temperature inside the egg, specifically of the yolk, there was a big difference. Of course, the water bath was limited to 212 degrees Fahrenheit or 100 degrees Celsius. This is the boiling point of water. Uh, we know that, you know, at that temperature, water doesn't really heat up beyond that because it equalizes with the, uh, you know, with the vapor pressure around it. So, so additional energy put into it goes into boiling off more and more of the water into steam. Uh, but the the yolk was significantly hotter than the boiling point of water. It was uh, there was an average of twenty two degrees Fahrenheit of difference between the water and the yolk, and yet the yolk has a significant amount of water in it. By some estimates, a chicken egg yolk is it's something like fifty percent water. Ah, okay. Now we're yeah, we're getting somewhere. Yeah, yeah. Well, of course, in addition to lots of proteins and fats and stuff. And so Nash's hypothesis about the explosion is that the microwave process, microwaving process somehow superheats little pockets of water inside the egg yolk beyond the boiling point of water. 
Now, there can be a couple of ways that water becomes superheated and then flashes suddenly into steam. One way is when water is heated in a microwave with an absence of what are called nucleation points. Nucleation sites are just little places where bubbles can form naturally that allow the water to begin to convert into steam. Uh, and this is why you might have been advised to put a little wooden coffee stirrer or something like that in a mug of water if you're heating mm. it in the microwave. There have been occasions where people have gotten burns by microwaving water, especially in very smooth, clean containers. Uh, and I've read also, especially when you repeatedly microwave the same container of water without like stirring it or touching it, mm. th there can be cases where the water just gets hotter and hotter, but it can't boil because there are no sites where this hot mass of water is able to start forming bubbles. And in these cases, the water can become hotter than its boiling point, but it looks perfectly calm until it's disturbed in some way that suddenly does provide nucleation points. Uh, this could include jostling the container, inserting a spoon or sugar or something like that. The superheated water can then quite suddenly flash into steam and explode. But another way that water can become superheated and flash suddenly into steam is changes in pressure. Uh, you know, remember the principles illustrated by a pressure cooker. The normal boiling point of water is determined by atmospheric pressure. So you can actually change the boiling point of water just by going up or down in altitude. If you go higher in altitude, up a mountain, water converts into vapor easier at a lower temperature, and this lowers the boiling point of water. Uh, so a boiling pot of water on top of a mountain will be cooler than a boiling point of water at sea level. In fact, there are even stories, I think we've talked about these in a previous episode, uh, stories of people trying to cook at super high altitudes and being unable to do it. Like mountain climbers on Everest uh, have sometimes found that you cannot, for example, boil potatoes effectively <laughs> at the top of Everest. Because at some point you get so high up and the pressure is so low that the boiling point of water gets so low that a pot of water on a burner literally just can't get hot enough to cook potatoes in a reasonable amount of time. Your, your water is boiling, but it's just not very hot. Conversely, if you increase the pressure on a cooking vessel by sealing it tight with a lid and a safety gasket and all that, you can actually raise the boiling point of water, allowing water to get a lot hotter than it ever would in a pot on the stove where it can just evaporate normally. And this cooks your food faster. This is the principle behind a pressure cooker. Uh, modern pressure cookers tend to be very safe by design, but they... Years ago, pressure cookers used to have a reputation for exploding. This was the thing people were afraid about, and there were cases of, of this happening. You can see why they could be dangerous in principle, because it's contents under pressure, and it's a, a bunch of superheated water. If suddenly exposed to reduced pressure, that water would try to convert from liquid water into steam really suddenly in a kind of explosive instant. Yeah, I remember growing up and hearing about like the the canning process in which one would uh, put uh, uh, you know the, their jars into a pressure cooker uh, to to sterilize them. Uh, I remember there being accounts of this which sounded dangerous. It sounded explosive to me. Uh, I don't know to what extent there was actually a, 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 some sort of cautionary tale involved in the the telling of it, but but I got the the sense that that, that cooking with a with a pressure cooker uh, had a, had some sort of inherent danger to it. I mean, there are natural dangers of like burns and stuff if you don't have a modern pressure cooker with 
good safety features. But I, I think mm-hmm. modern pressure cookers, like if it's made by a reputable company and all that, it's going to have safety features in place that make it pretty darn safe to use. Oh, yeah. Like, like uh, yeah, we use one all the time for various, uh, you know, rice dishes and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Great for lentils. Yeah. But anyway, so so back to the pressure issue. I think this is what Anthony Nash is sort of hypothesizing is happening inside the yolk of an exploding egg. Uh, while an egg is being microwaved, it's got this protein matrix inside the yolk that becomes hotter than the boiling point of water. And this protein matrix is holding all these little pockets of water trapped inside. These pockets of water become superheated beyond the boiling point of water. And when the egg is pierced, these little pockets of superheated liquid water can suddenly boil. They, they flash into steam very rapidly, causing the egg to explode in the process. Now, I don't know if Nash's hypothesis about the, the cause of the exploding eggs is correct. I can't judge for sure, but it seems pretty plausible to me. Uh, and I think it's a, a pretty clear indication that microwaving hard-boiled eggs is not a very good idea. You know, if you've got cold, hard-boiled eggs, why not just eat them cold or make egg salad? Yeah, yeah, don't risk the explosion. How, you know, however, all this talk, okay, we're talking about the pressure uh, inside the egg and changes to, to, to the pressure and atmospheric pressure. It does make me wonder, okay, could you have a scenario where you're, say, venturing aboard a derelict spaceship and, and you're encountering the eggs of another species? Who knows, like, under what atmospheric conditions they were originally um, uh, laying? Good point, uh, Yeah. Yeah, and and then and then what happened? You know, where they put on a ship with an entirely different uh, pressure, and then maybe that pressure went away. Maybe the people now discovering it bring it back to their ship, and there's a different uh, uh, air pressure scenario going on. Could you end up with an explosive alien egg uh, along those lines? I'm going to rule it physically plausible, but unproven. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, we're going to take one more break. But when we come back, uh, we have a couple of more eggs for you. All right, we're back. Robert, is it time to pet the furry egg? Yes, let us consider the furry egg. So uh, my, my family, like a lot of uh, households out there, uh, recently enjoyed viewing the excellent series The Mandalorian, uh, which features everything I love about Star Wars, including some really cool creatures. And one of the most important in the series is this creature that, that pops up called a mudhorn. And it's this large mammalian creature, or assume, we assume it to be mammalian, uh, that looks a lot like a woolly rhino. It's like an alien take on a woolly rhino. And as its name implies, it makes its home in the mud. Here, it lays a very unique furry egg. Uh, and this, by the way, is on the world uh, Arvala 7N, uh, and it's here that Jawas consider it a, a delicacy. So, of course, our, our main character ends up being sent on a quest to obtain the furry egg. <laughs> okay. I still haven't seen this, but th- this sounds good. Yeah, well, you're in for a treat with this one. I know Baby Yoda. So we've got, we've got furry eggs and Baby Yoda. What Were they just trying to, like, cute you to death? Oh, well, I mean, I think cute is an important part of Star Wars. You got to have a cute element in there. And I think yeah. I think anyone who um, who disagrees with me on that is wrong. There's there's got to be something cute in there. And uh, <laughs> and so you got you got your Yoda, you got your, your furry egg here. Um, but the furry egg is, I think, really something to ponder, though, because in many ways it seems paradoxical and suitably alien. Right. Uh, because eggs, we tend to just assume, you know, eggs are the domain of scale and feather, right? Not the domain of fur. Sure. 
fur is typically the domain of mammals. But of course, the mammalian world is not entirely devoid of egg layers because, of course, we have the monotremes. Ah, that's right. Yeah. Now, monotremes are, uh, when we're talking about monotremes, we're talking about, I think, what, five species uh, around still today. One, of course, is the platypus, which we're largely going to, to leave alone to its monstrous pools in this episode, because I'd like to come back and really dive into the platypus uh, and focus on it, because it is a true monster, uh, and, and it's wonderful. But then we have, I think, four different species of echidna to consider as well. So monotremes are thought to have diverged from other mammals roughly 190 million years ago, though there's still a lot we don't know about them and their connections to other mammals. But, but among their most notable features is their egg laying. Oh, and incidentally, uh, the name Echidna, uh, we get that from the, uh, the Greek mythological figure, Echidna, who is sometimes described as the mother of monsters mm -hmm. uh, and who is often depicted as having like a, a half snake, half human body. Therefore, she embodies both mammalian and serpentine aspects. I'm just trying to remember, why did the word Echidna make me think of vampires? Is, the, is there like an Echidna vampire in the Witcher games or something? I don't know. I don't know. I've never played the Witcher games, but I mean, Echidna is a, a wonderful name for a, a monstrous enemy. So I think I'm brushing up against a sound alike here, but but Echidna in the mythological context is is cool enough on her own, right? And uh, and when we look to the the organisms that we have dubbed Echidnas, uh, they're really fascinating as well. Less frightening and monstrous, perhaps, but just weird and at times uh, adorable. So I was reading a few different sources on this, one of which is, a, is an excellent little article from the New York Times in 2009 titled Brainy Echidna Proves Looks Aren't Everything. And the author, uh, Natalie Angier, has this wonderful little paragraph uh, describing their re reproduction. Quote, reproductively, monotremes are like a VCR DVD unit. <laughs> An embodiment of a technology in transition. They lay leathery eggs, as reptiles do, but then feed the so-called puggles that hatch with milk drizzled out of glands in the chest rather than expressed through nippled teats, and sometimes so enriched with iron that it looks pink. Whoa. Man, I'm still reeling from that VCR DVD unit comparison. <laughs> it makes me think this should have been the subject of a uh, Fast and the Furious movie, like they're trying to hijack a truck full of echidna. <laughs> well, they're they're um, they're they're weird looking creatures. First of all, the, that 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 um, iron enriched milk that's uh, I'm assuming coming largely from their diet of ants and termites. So they're mm -hmm. voracious ant and termite eaters. And yeah, yeah they're just re look up a picture of one because they're they're really neat. They have this. This specialized snout clearly uh, evolved uh, to enable them to uh, pursue their, their main prey. And then they have these just pudgy, spiny uh, bodies. Uh, they're, they're absolutely weird and adorable looking. And if you look up images of, of, a, of, a, of an echidna puggle, uh, of, a, of a baby echidna, uh, it is just even weirder and more cuddly. They're like little... Um, Little bean bags with uh, with snouts. I believe the adults are spiny, aren't they? Are the are the young yes. also spiny? No, that well as we'll discuss the the young are are born or rather hatch without spines and then develop them later. Okay. Uh, but yeah, the adults definitely have spines uh, for their protection. Now, uh, to come back to the pink milk, uh, it look I was looking at a, a 2008 Harvard University study that. Um, 
the claims that the echidna might have simply evolved away from suckling due to the, due to the demands of its specialized mouth parts and its specialized diet. So not necessarily a case here where the echidna is like, um, you, know, you know, predates uh, suckling, but rather uh, might have evolved away from suckling as a means of uh, carrying out its diet. Yeah, maybe a, a mouth made for devouring ants is not ideal for uh, th- this way of getting milk. Yeah, exactly. More for lapping. Yeah. So, so let's talk about the eggs a little bit. So the eggs of an echidna, I want to be clear, are not furry. Um, the echidna is, of course, covered with, with spines, but also coarse hair. Uh, so this is still not a case of a furry egg. The egg is leathery, and 22 days after conception, it is deposited directly into the female's pouch. And after 10 days of gestation in the pouch, the puggle busts through uh, that leathery shell with a reptile-like egg tooth and then remains in the pouch for another 45 to 55 days, continuing to develop in major ways such as uh, growing out those defensive spines. And if you, I, I highly encourage everyone to, to look up video footage of this. I found a great echidna hatching video that's easily found on YouTube from, uh, I want to say it's from the 70s or maybe the 50s. I can't, can't recall. It's, it's older Whoa. footage, but you get to see one of these little puggles, and it's pointed out that the puggle is so, uh, you know, immature, so translucent, so helpless, that after it has uh, stuffed itself with milk, you can see the milk inside of it through its translucent pink body. Whoa, that that makes me think of the honeypot ants, where you can. Uh, yeah, yeah, it it does look a lot like that. You know, it's it's just so immature and and helpless at that point. It's uh, uh it's. I was thinking it's kind of like a, a translucent gusher candy, you know, <laughs> but with a kidna milk in the middle. Wait, didn't we also compare the honeypot ants to gushers? I guess we did. We just we just uh, got gushers on the brain here. Yeah, I don't even know if they still make gushers, but God, that is the most malevolent candy of all time. I don't know. Now that I'm thinking about it, do you think Gushers, um, you know, they, they, they have that kind of popping liquid filled, maybe there's supposed to be like eggs, you know, uh-huh. it's this, it, children want to gobble up the eggs of some strange purpley uh, fruit scented creature. And that's what Gushers are for. I don't want to know what happens if you microwave a Gusher. No, I'm sure it's been done. Certainly do not try it on our account, though, if, if, <laughs> if, if it hasn't been done. Don't ever microwave anything because you heard us talking about something. A blanket right. statement, all, all liability erased. Yes. It's yeah, follow gone. the instructions uh, for heating anything in the microwave. Okay, so back to monotrines. So there were once hundreds of monotrine species, uh, and the largest that we know of was one that uh, is known as Zaglosis haketi, and it would have been about a meter long and weighed about 30 kilograms, so about 3.2 feet long and weighing 66 pounds. Um, I, I've, I've seen some images here. I included one in our document, uh, Joe, where you can see about how big this would have been, and it would have been like, I don't know. What would you say? Like a like a very large, plump dog. Yeah, that sounds about right. A spiny bulldog. Again, not a furry egg, but in a way, close to a furry egg. Okay. But but I will add that there is perhaps another uh, possibility for furry egg uh, hunting in nature. Uh, certain moths are often described as being furry. Granted, we're we're dealing with something different than what you would encounter on your pet dog or your pet cat. 
Uh, but these moths, uh, such as the gypsy moth, will actually cover their eggs with a coating that contains that quote-unquote fur. So, you know, that might be one way to tackle the problem. I suppose the idea of an egg naturally being insulated with a layer of hair isn't completely crazy, but I don't think we see it. Uh, and, and most examples we see entail a stronger alliance on the parent's body or efforts by the parent to secret the egg away in a warm place. Yeah. All right. And for our final egg exploration or exploration uh, here today, I thought we might consider uh, the idea of the god and his egg. Okay, let's do it. So uh, we, we've mentioned this entity on the show before, uh, and Joe, you might even remember it. Uh, I think, think we came up in one of our episodes. The Egyptian Book of the Dead speaks of, and this is, of course, a translation, quote, that august god who is in his egg, a terrifying entity said to rule over the realm of, uh, of Exi within the Egyptian underworld. It's, a, it's described as a yellow realm that is hidden from the gods and subject to the powers of the eye that captures. Wow. And so there's an invocation uh, for the, uh, the traveler into the afterlife. Uh, they would say, Hail to you, you august god who are in your egg. I have come to you to be in your suite so that I may go in and out of Ixi, that its doors may be opened to me, that I may breathe the air in it, and that I may have power through its offerings. Okay, so you got to prostrate yourself before the egg. Yeah, yeah, this weird, and I, something about this idea, it's, again, it comes back to this paradox of, uh, that is often inherent in the egg, you know, what is the egg, things that emerge out of the egg. But here, especially the paradox of a thing that is post-egg and pre-egg at once, the thing that never emerged from its egg and yet is a complete being in some form. Like it is a god, but it has not hatched, mm-hmm. and it somehow has the powers of an entity that is, um, you know, that is, that is, that is, you know, fully powerful. Yeah. I mean, the egg is in many ways, the archetype of potential. Yeah. So again, the August God and his egg, terrifying, uh, weird, uh, almost impossible to behold, but it also does bring to mind, uh, I don't know if you remember this uh, character, but, uh, there's a character named Sheldon uh, who was uh, featured on uh, in Jim Davis's U.S. Acres uh, cartoon, and this showed up on Garfield and Friends. Rachel and I were just talking about U.S. Acres the other day. I don't remember why it came up, but we, we both remember having this feeling where you'd be watching Garfield, and then it would go to this other thing, this farm thing. And I remember having this feeling like, when is this going to start making sense? <laughs> and I don't think it ever did. Yeah, you would you would get Garfield, and then you would then you would get uh, U.S. Acres, and then you would get a little more Garfield. It was what uh, like the uh, was, I think they called it like an ABA format. Uh-huh. Um, but uh, but U.S. Acres had a whole host of characters, you know, your typical farm characters. But one of them, the one that really made it memorable, was that you had Sheldon, who was a chicken that was still in its egg. It was just an egg, like a walking egg, an egg with two chicken uh, legs emerging from it. Mm-hmm. It, it. And there are other takes on this out there. There's a wonderful children's book by Minnie Gray uh, titled Egg Drop, and it features an egg that wants to fly. And I don't recall if it actually has legs, but it certainly has like a will of its own and it wants to do things and it thinks it can do things that a, a hatched uh, chicken, a fully developed chicken should be capable of. 
that's a funny symbol. I mean, it, uh, it, we all have the experience in childhood of wanting to do the things that adults do, not understanding why I can't do that yet. And in a lot of cases, the reason is intellectual and emotional maturity. You don't have that like level of uh, like brain responsibility yet to be an adult. But the egg is a different thing, right? Because it doesn't have limbs and it can't move around on its own. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. And that's that's roughly kind of the idea that, that Minnie Gray explores in this this excellent book, uh, which also, by the way, has some like principles of um, of aerodynamics involved in it. So I wouldn't say that it's a science book, mm-hmm. but it has a little science sprinkled in it and it has wonderful illustrations. Oh, OK. Now, the pro- for, for our purposes, though, in the natural world, the prospect of an animal simply never leaving its egg uh, is is certainly fascinating. It's it's paradoxical to a magical degree. It's kind of like the Ouroboros serpent consuming its own tail, right? Mm-hmm. But while we don't see examples in the, in the natural world where an egg lasts forever, like the egg is the final form, we do see examples where the egg phase lasts for a pretty long time. Oh, yeah. I guess I've never asked this specific question before. What What is the longest egg incubation period in, in nature? Yeah, like just to come back to Alien, right? Mm-hmm. There's that the open question in in that movie is like, how long have these eggs been here? You right. know, it sort of implies uh, like thousands of years or something. Yeah, l- long enough for um, for the for the engineer up there on the uh, uh, the the seat thing to to rot and become a, a mummy. But uh, but yeah, when we look to the natural world, we, there's some pretty startling um, examples. Uh, probably the most startling that I ran across is the deep-sea octopus, Granelodon boropacifica. And it has been observed to brood its eggs for 4.5 years, or 53 months. Wow. And to put that in a, in a proper frame of reference, that's compared to the typical one- to three-month brooding time for shallower-water octopus species. That's unbelievable. I mean, so an egg can't defend itself, so that would mean an egg has to either just survive on its own or be protected for for four and a half years before it can hatch and at least have like escape behaviors. Exactly, and and that's exactly and and what we see with the octopus is a mother caring for the eggs, looking after the eggs, and and of course one of the curious wrinkles here is that typically the mother does not eat during this period. Like she has she has deposited the eggs, and now her only purpose in life is to protect them and to ultimately die protecting them. Like she's not gonna she's not going to eat. Uh, they're going to hatch, and then when they are gone, she is going to die. Wow. So with the deep sea octopus, this 4.5 year brooding period in which she looks after them, this is apparently the longest brooding period of any known animal. I was reading about this in a study by Robinson et al. published in PLOS 1 in 2014. And uh, and they go into greater uh, detail on this. You can find the whole study online. But the, the two key factors they say here are low temperature, uh, because, of course, it's the deep sea, and, right. and this means slower metabolism. We see other examples of this in other organisms uh, in terms of just uh, you know, slow metabolism and, uh, and low temperature. But then also key here is the selective advantage of producing highly developed hatchlings. So uh, it, it comes back to the idea that once they're, they're, they hatch, they're ready to go. They're well-cooked, uh, ready to move. The clutch size of the deep sea octopus is is quite small compared to 
other octopus species. So there's ultimately this focus on quality over quantity. Instead of it being a situation where like, let's get some baby octopi out there. A lot of them are going to get eaten, but some of them will slip by. No, this is instead, let's focus on a smaller bunch of, of, uh, of octopus young uh, that all have a very strong fighting chance. And while this might be a familiar tactic to, you know, people thinking about mammals and birds and stuff, this is the less common choice for organisms that live in the ocean, right? I mean, marine yeah. organisms are very often just sort of spamming with eggs. I mean, like there, there's tons of production of offspring with very little investment in each individual one. Yeah, it's usually, um, you know, generally when we're talking about the, about the cases that buck the trend, we're, of course, dealing with something like, like a whale, uh, you know, mm. a mammalian species that return to the water, or we're dealing with, uh, you know, really interesting examples from the shark world. Yeah. But this is the octopus. Uh, so the researchers stress, though, that um, this is a pretty abundant deep sea species. So it's not like we've necessarily found a true rarity in the natural order of things. It just seems like a rarity because we don't understand deep sea ecology well enough. Interesting. And, and the other side of it that they point out is, again, octopus mothers generally don't eat during their brooding. So... It's, it would seem to be the case uh, that this mother does not eat for 4.5 years. Um, and, uh, and this is not completely understood, but basically it seems like it's going to come back to the slower metabolism of deep sea creatures. Yeah. So what you load up on a bunch of body fat or, or stored energy before this brooding period and then in the extreme cold and dark, uh, I would imagine it's probably not moving a whole lot during this period. You just sort of like take your metabolism way, way down so you can stay in it for the long haul without continuous reinvestments of chemical energy. Yeah, absolutely. So it's not quite the god in his egg, but uh, it is interesting to see like an example of like what remains an egg the longest uh, under natural conditions on our planet. I did not know about this octopus, and this is absolutely majestic. Yeah, I mean, the, the octopus world, as we see time and time again on the show, is just full of, of wonders. And there's still so much we have to learn about them. Yeah, I'd imagine, especially with these really deep ones. Yeah, all right, well, we're going to go ahead and uh, seal the egg chamber shut for this episode. But like I said, there are a lot of eggs out there in the natural world, a lot of unique um, uh, egg forms, a lot of unique egg-laying strategies. Uh, we would love to come back and explore more of these uh, if everyone out there is interested. If you're interested, let us know. If you have your own uh, experiences uh, with eggs of varying species, uh, feel free to write in and tell us about it. Or likewise, if there's just a really cool example of eggs in the natural world or something from science fiction that you think we should know about that we could really uh, pick up and run with, uh, then let us know about that as well. In the meantime, if you want to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you can find us wherever you get your podcast and wherever that happens to be. Just make sure you rate, review, and subscribe. Huge thanks, as always, to our wonderful audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, to tell us your stories about eggs, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.